Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that is always fearless but with common sense, which is why this week's show has been recorded while driving around with my eyes closed. No, not at night time. Come on, common sense. I'm Tiernan and Duyeb and the big story is that US President and remains of a bouncy castle fished out of a quagmire Donald Trump contracted COVID-19 at some point last week. Something that has shocked many of us as we all assumed he was too toxic to get it and it'd just die on contact with him. Then again, if only we'd paid attention since 2016, then perhaps it'd be no surprise that he's very open to interference by foreign bodies. Much like Donald Trump himself, the thing with science is that no matter how hard you try to ignore it, it just won't go away. It makes sense that the COVID-19 virus would eventually come to get Trump, no doubt seeing just how efficient a super spreader he was when it came to straight up lies. Since March, the Blotus has made statements about how America has the lowest mortality rate from COVID in the world, a statement that is only remotely true if you genuinely believe the Baseball World Series is a global event, but even then, the stats are ruined by Canada. Or there was the one about how injecting disinfectant would cure you from it, a baffling thing to believe even when you can get flash all-purpose. And then there was during the first presidential election debate against the Democratic candidate and touche turtle Joe Biden, where Trump said he only puts a mask on when he needs it. Presumably it's the only way Melania can cope to be near him. And that he's not like Biden as every time you see Joe, he's wearing a mask. Which isn't true, as right there at the debate with Trump, Biden wasn't wearing a mask, which really got in the way of Trump's supposed jibe. It's like shouting to the village, the apple will never fall back down to earth as a dozen Granny Smiths bounce off your cranium. Biden probably should have worn a mask at the debate, though, as it turns out Trump was infectious after an event on the Saturday where he announced to a packed audience of non-mask wearers that Amy Coney Barrett, leader of the Dark Judges, was his SCOTUS pick. At least seven attendees of that event caught the COVID, so with credit to Barrett, she did sort of help justice get served. Then it was the debate on Tuesday where three old white men, Trump, Biden and the chair, shouted over each other for 90 minutes in something that was less of a debate and more like feeding time at a home for retired sea lions. A particular low light was Trump being asked if he'd condemn white supremacists, and he responded by saying the far-right group who sound like a sticky he'd give a kid for having a week of dry nights, the Proud Boys, should stand back and stand by. Not really a condemnation at all, unless you're taking over from someone you think is doing an inadequate fireworks display. 
The day after the debate, the president attended a fundraiser at his golf club in Bedminster, where it turns out he already knew his advisor and photo blend of failed 90s singers, Hope Hicks, had tested positive, proving that yes, it really is the hope that kills you. Potentially up to 206 people were exposed to coronavirus at that fundraiser, which I don't think is what Trump's donors were hoping for in return. Though, saying that, if they really want him to have another four years in office, maybe it's what they paid for so they wouldn't have to be around to witness it. On Thursday, Trump revealed Hicks's diagnosis and said that he and Melania were now self-isolating, though hopefully for her sake, not together. And then we found out that they both tested for Covid too. Many assumed it was a hoax, that maybe this is an election strategy to bolster support, rather than everyone in America going, ha ha, it serves you right, you prick. But then Trump was taken to a military hospital and you knew it was serious or he'd have dodged trying to get drafted there. Some Republicans think it's China's attempts to assassinate Trump, which seems like an overly long way round to do it when they could have just hired someone to slightly increase all the salt in his meals for a better and quicker result. Trump is in several high-risk categories for COVID, being overweight in his 70s and having a weakened immune system, or at least I assume he does, which is why he gets so upset when anyone makes fun of him. Over the weekend, the messages were quite mixed on exactly when they thought Trump might have caught coronavirus and also on how he was doing with it, with some commenting that he was in good spirits, which could have just meant that he'd drunk all of the hand sanitizer, but then others saying that he'd been low on oxygen, entirely plausible after he ranted non-stop at the debate on Tuesday. Something was definitely off though, as we were told he'd only gone to the Walter Reed Military Hospital due to an abundance of caution, something he can only have had because he'd never used up any of it ever before. Supposedly, he took work with him to do too, which again is proof he was very unwell, as he never did any of it at the White House when he was meant to, though I suppose they could have just meant he insisted he had a golf caddy in his room. Trump's doctors say he's been put on experimental drugs to tackle COVID, but what if those drugs cause the side effects of making you glow iridescent orange, cause memory loss and incoherent speech, as now we'll never know till someone else is given them. The president refused to hand control over to his vice president and what if Lego figures could die, Mike Pence, because if he did that, then who would hold the door open or weigh the paper down? Pence's COVID test was negative, despite being near the president several times in the past week, but it's probably because he won't let anything enter him unless his wife is in the room. While Pence has avoided it for now, along with Melania and Hope Hicks, several other Republicans have all tested positive in the last few days, including Trump's press secretary, the Republican National Committee chair, a former Trump aide and three senators, proving coronavirus to be the best opposition to the GOP that America has had in years. Trump is now supposedly feeling better, releasing a video saying that having the virus meant he'd been to the real school and he'd learnt a lot about Covid, so much in fact that he made an appearance in his motorcade to wave at supporters outside the hospital while still highly infectious, in what you might call a drive-by crouping. The US Secret Service are livid that he may have put their agents at risk by doing this, but Trump's brief trip in the car caused stock futures to rise, maybe because they know how much money would be saved on security if Trump killed them all off. It's a shame he has to go through something just to learn about it, but I suppose that does mean there's hope he'll finally understand the law and prison system in the near future. Donald will be discharged from the hospital by the time you hear this and back on the campaign trail as he tweeted that he felt better than he did 20 years ago, which is funny as back in 2000 he was in the middle of a failed presidential campaign, so fingers crossed. Trump said that people shouldn't be afraid of Covid because, you know, they can all get experimental treatments at the very best hospital in the country. But all of this bodes well for Joe Biden, and not just because Trump's attitude is unsurprisingly disrespectful of everyone who's lost someone to the virus, but also if he coughs his way round those rallies, all of his most avid supporters might end up being too ill to vote. It really brings a new meaning to the term election fever, eh? 
There were concerns after Trump's constant interruptions that the format of future debates would have to be changed. But now with him getting COVID and still being infectious for another week or so, he'll hopefully be sealed in a perspect cage throughout, like a mime having their worst nightmare. And hopefully they'll soundproof it too for the best result. Lots of Republicans who scream violence against anyone who disagrees with them are really upset that many have said that this is what Trump deserves and they'd really hope that he'd die. But they should be pleased, as nothing would have proved that Donald was indeed their saviour than if he had died and then they could have just waited around for three days to see if he'd come back. Even if Trump feels better now though, Covid symptoms can get better before they get worse again. And just what would happen if both Trump and then Biden were incapacitated by it, meaning that neither could be elected? Would coronavirus become the new US president? And would Americans cope with a leader who genuinely doesn't discriminate against anyone? Meanwhile, over in the UK, Prime Minister and nanny from Count Ducula, Boris Johnson, wished the president all the best and told reporters that Trump will come through it well, which is an image I never wanted in my head ever. Over here, our Prime Minister's Covid headache is not being caused by having it, as Johnson did that shaking everyone's hands back in April in a rare event of the UK setting a trend ahead of the States. Here, it's just down to a huge rise in cases, which Boris has said is a result of the fraying of people's discipline over the summer. Because he's the sort of person who turn up to your party, take a shit in your kitchen, and then call up the next day to berate you for your unhygienic living standards. If his government aren't to blame at all, then why are their policies so confusing that once again the Prime Minister doesn't even understand them? He said it was fine for people in the North East to still mix with other households outside, which it isn't, before then backtracking on Twitter and saying that he misspoke. One of those rare moments when the Prime Minister says something that is not only true, but always true every single day of his life. The business secretary and Ursula from The Little Mermaid on a day off, Alok Sharma, defended the PM against criticism of this blunder, saying the Covid rules aren't a quiz show, which is true. But imagine if you were on a quiz show and the subject was all the stuff you're directly in charge of and responsible for and you still somehow cocked it up. Does anyone understand the restrictions anymore? Johnson's dad Stanley, like a dog-chewed Sylvanian family toy, was snapped not wearing a mask twice last week in a shop and then the airport. Though he might well have a medical exemption as covering his mouth would mean he'd have to smell the classist bullshit that comes out of it and that might make him quite sick. Former Labour leader and George R.R. Martin looks unwell, Jeremy Corbyn, was perhaps attending a memorial for his friend, with him being the eighth person, as in breaching the rule of six. He apologised, but you'd think that Jezza would know better and that eight is too much, considering he's always said for the many. Personally, I think it's a nice thing to honour the dead by showing them they might have some company really soon. The worst example of rule breaching last week, though, came from SNP MP and what if Carol Vorderman was horrifically possessed, Margaret Ferrier, who knowingly attended Parliament and caught a train back to Scotland after receiving a positive test result. A callous breach of the rules, and if the SNP hadn't quickly suspended her and called for her resignation, I'd almost think they were just stepping up their independence campaign by sending a biological weapon straight into Westminster. I mean, look, if you're going to contaminate anyone, it would be the front bench, right? And then at the end of September every year, we can all celebrate Margaret Ferrier Day, where we stand too close to each other in groups of six and get a penny for the masked Margaret effigy that we wash the hands of several times. Johnson says he doesn't want a second lockdown and says that people should behave fearlessly but with common sense, which isn't really a thing. It's like saying stylishly but while wearing red trousers. If you're fearless, it'll probably impinge on the common sense bit just a tad. You're not going to say, try and start a scrap with a grizzly bear, but last minute think, oh, I better put some warm socks on to keep my toes toasty in case my legs are ripped off. Maybe what Boris Johnson wants is for us to be unafraid of the virus, but aware that it may hospitalise or kill us, so just be pragmatic about it. You know, I'm not scared of this virus, so I'm not wearing a mask, but I have also packed extra pants and a book in my bag, just in case I need something to do on the ward in between coughs. 
It can't be easy to make a decision on lockdowns when you don't actually know the real figures, as it was discovered that nearly 16,000 cases of coronavirus in the UK weren't reported last week, and there was a technical glitch, apparently caused by having the database in Microsoft Excel and it reaching its maximum size and not updating. Excel? Why were they using that for COVID cases? Did the track and trace team clearly misunderstand the term spreadsheet? Track and Trace has cost £12 million so far, and yet they're using a programme like Excel. It's amazing more of the government haven't caught COVID, considering they'd probably struggle to have more than one window open at a time. I'd now be completely unsurprised if the entire Track and Trace system is just done with post-it notes, a pinboard and some string like a crime scene investigation, and Foreign Secretary and what if you put Botox into a tin of spam Dominic Rubb isn't allowed to visit as he'd just panic and think they're close to catching him. Hopefully there will be more scrutiny over all these areas soon, as MPs voted to extend coronavirus legislation powers on the understanding that Health Secretary and, oh God, who left the work experience kid in charge, Matt Hancock, promised that Parliament would get votes on new Covid policy where possible. Though I'm sure what that means is that every time he's asked, he'll say it's not possible this time, as Windows 95 is updating and it'll take another four days before they can do anything with it, or all the floppy disks are full up. Johnson has said that it could be bumpy through to Christmas, which is likely when the roads are going to be full of collapsed government systems like the world's most expensive speed humps. In other news, MPs voted through the internal market bill by 340 votes to 257 because the Conservatives have decided their tough stance on crime is actually them taking all the illegal work so other lawbreakers will be made redundant. European Commission President and startled pastry Ursula von der Leyen announced that the EU would be starting legal proceedings against the UK for not removing parts of the internal market bill deemed unlawful. Judging by how this government usually treats the law, they'll insist they did nothing wrong and try to blame it on somewhere smaller that had nothing to do with it, like Jersey. The EU and UK have approved one more month of Brexit negotiations where they will intensify, which probably means asking the UK's Brexit negotiator and stack of wet Weetabix in the rain, David Frost, to stop using crayons and telling him they won't be explaining things to him anymore using pictures and sounds. A further major concern of a no-deal Brexit that's been highlighted is that if it occurred, all UK intelligence would be deleted, which I suppose it would finally mean it was on a par with government intelligence. The Conservative conference is currently happening, online mostly, which has led to them finally doing something in the public interest after the system crashed on Saturday and no one was able to see prebiotic suit Michael Gove. Win! Chancellor and animated door handle Rishi Sunak vowed to balance the books, something the Conservatives haven't managed to do for 10 years now, probably because they seem to think part of how to do that is to close libraries. Sunak did the same old chat about how they can't simply borrow their way out of a hole, something he should definitely let the Prime Minister know about, and how he can't save every job. And instead he echoed what many Conservative ministers have said this past week, that there will be job coaches to help people find work, which sounds a lot like you'll be able to get a bus to your chain gang. Apparently people will be encouraged to work in growing sectors, but there's no clue as to what those sectors might be in a country currently riddled with unemployment. So I'm guessing our best bet is lorry park attendants and grave diggers. Never one to be out awfuled, Home Secretary and the only person who gets off stepping on a sharp toy with a bare foot, Pretty Patel, attacked human rights do-gooders, which I think makes her instantly a do-badders. She said they and lefty lawyers were blocking reform of the UK's asylum system. But the thing is, as leaked earlier in the week, some ideas for these plans included sending asylum seekers to an island 4,000 miles away to be processed. Is that what was meant by an Australian-style system, in that that is what Australia do, or rather that in sending people to an island, the UK will just create a new Australia that in years to come will be copying the asylum plans of and hiring their worst representative to work for us? 
maybe by sending those people far away and it costing lots of money, Patel is hoping to make asylum seekers truly integrate with British society by giving them an extreme boarding school experience till they too feel as bitter, unloved and neglected as those in government. And then she can hire them for the Home Office. Another plan involved having boats with pumps generate waves into the channel, forcing boats back towards France, which is just horribly cruel. I mean, why not at least add a water slide, loads of banana boats, a jacuzzi and some really high diving boards, call it the Channel Splash Park and charge slightly too much for tickets and then no one will come as it will never be the right weather for it. It is Boris Johnson's conference speech on Tuesday, so it will have happened by the time you hear this. And while it will be the same hollow bluster as usual, Conservatives are apparently urging him to be more old Boris. And I couldn't agree more, as old Boris wasn't Prime Minister. The Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill is in Parliament as I record and will likely get voted through. If it does, it will allow undercover agents for MI5 and the police to break the law. And that's pretty scary and could allow them to really mess up some legitimate organisations. And it will stop people getting justice if they're victims of abuse or violence from undercover cops. Labour are opposing the bill, and by that I mean abstaining from voting, because as you know, the best offence is to not turn up in the first place and let authoritarians do what they like. And Cineworld have announced the closure of its 663 screens, affecting 45,000 jobs, blaming the delaying of the opening date of the forthcoming Bond movie, where it seems his secret mission was to close down all the cinemas. Thanks, covert human intelligence sources, Bill. Fuck's sake. Boris Johnson has urged people to go to the cinema, probably just so if infections keep rising, then once again, he can make us take all the credits. I did promise that the intro comedy bit of these podcasts would get shorter, but who knew Trump would get COVID? Oh yeah, that's right. All of us. I really wanted to call him the boy who coughed wolf, but I think I called Johnson that in an episode back in April. I find it amazing that Trump is such a compulsive liar that everyone automatically thought, nah, he's lying, this is an election scam, and then within hours it was, nah, he's lying that he's okay, he's definitely fucked. I can't imagine being so untrustworthy that people can't even trust what to think I was lying about. Were you hoping he'd die from it? I'll be honest, I mean, I was, or at the very least, get, you know, that he'd get it so bad it would put him in a coma for approximately six weeks, so it'd be Mike Pence having to front the election, which would have been that sort of telly that would be so bad you'd have to watch it. Yeah, actually, not death, really, as that would just let Trump get away with it all, and it'd definitely be better for him to witness losing and then going to prison. Not that anything like that will happen, I'm sure, but him getting COVID did feel like a tiny nudge that karma exists. It's just not as powerful as we'd like it to be, as it's probably been overwhelmed for the last few years. I mean, if anything, karma might need to offload someone to a different Hindu idea like Bhakti, and then Bhakti could really devote some time to dealing with the small shitty occurrences like only wearing a mask over your mouth but not your nose, or not indicating before changing lane, and then making sure those people just stub their toe or lose their keys or something, and then karma could be all freed up to go out on the big guns. You know. Ah well, this episode will very likely go out of date within two seconds of releasing it yet again. I'm still miffed though about Alok Sharma uh, responding to a question from Med Miliband last week about all the jobs that are not being supported and he said, well, that people should just get better jobs. Thanks for sounding like my dad, Alok. No joke, my dad is actually uh, very supportive. But it's just such a mean statement, especially when coming from someone who's part of a government full of people with fuck all experience of anything. I do wonder if they're just not supporting any sort of entertainment as that might cheer people up and reverse everything they're trying to do. Ugh, total bastards. Honestly, I think that's why Trump getting Covid cheered me up so much. It was like the night the rumour spread that David Cameron has shagged a pig. Do you remember that? Ah, Piggate, such beautiful times. And in these very, very odd, odd days, I will take the victories where I can. 
Hello, I mean, that's how I should have started, shouldn't I? Hello, you. Um, thanks for being back here yet again. Thanks this week to Christine and somebody for donating to the Kofi. And of course, if you are against the idea of me getting a better job, uh, possibly out of fear that I'll end up at your workplace and make it unbearable, then please do donate if you can to the uh, ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. Uh, join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or just drop us a few quid via the ACAST supporter button. Uh, obviously, if you can't, because honestly, who has money anymore? No one. No one's got money. I saw they've released some James Bond branded gold bullion for the new film. Pointless. Who wants or can afford that? Golden Y more like. Yeah, I should have. Shouldn't have kept that gag in, should I? Oh, well, um, but yeah, look, if you can't donate, please do give the show a tasty five-star review on them podcast apps. Or just tell other people that you like it, so they may also tune in to hear me say exactly the same pleading requests every single week for some sort of gratification and justification of my non-proper job. Uh, no points of order this week, but I did a really fun podcast record last week where I got to travel into town and actually see other real-life comedians like it was the olden days. Um, don't worry, it was all safe and distanced and that, um, though the temperature check that they did on us all kept saying that everyone was only... 22 degrees celsius so they scrapped that rather than accept we'd all died and hadn't noticed which i think is the best option um the podcast is hosted by the very fun vix layton and it's called comedy arcade and it's going to be launched on october the 17th i have no idea when my episodes will be um in amongst them but uh do a subscribe as i'm sure they'll be a very fun listen Okay, uh, on this week's show, uh, partly because I felt we needed a break from the very bleak, but also because the US politics happenings meant the person I was going to speak to about that got caught up in all of those things instead. So instead, uh, there is a fun chat with Ellie Fishley from uh, Shout Out UK on why comedians are not journalists and the importance of political literacy. Plus, a little look at the past few weeks of conference season, which means I get to roll out that terrible, terrible jingle yet again. You're welcome. Where do you get your news from? Do you watch the actual television news like someone from the last century, occasionally checking your fax machine to see if it's still working and having to fill up your oil lamp? Maybe you get it from newspapers that you read while riding your woolly mammoth to the gravel pit. Maybe you get all your news from Facebook six days later than everyone else and only the stories your racist aunt is interested in about how people from abroad are plotting to put your bins out on the wrong night. Or maybe you get it from Twitter where breaking news appears only as quickly as everyone's instant bad takes about it. Some of you kind souls have said that you get your news from this show, which is lovely, but it really worries me because I don't know all the news and I only pick the bits I can make jokes about or have felt particularly annoyed about that day. Meaning that if Parpol Bro is your only worldly update, there's every chance you're missing out on something really important, you know, such as that time that German nudist chased a wild boar or Gavin the paddleboarding seal became a local celebrity in West Sussex. Both of those are real stories. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And the thing is, with the news being often farcical or depressing, many news programmes becoming ever more sensationalist and newspapers often having really clear political bias, many do turn to other news sources, including that of comedians. In the US, The Daily Show has changed from being quite gag-heavy to more news that has some funny stuff in it as a response to what viewers need right now. A breakdown of issues as well as occasional relief. John Oliver's Last Week Tonight has won awards for being the best current affairs show, despite it being hosted by a comedian and being full of gags. And in the UK, shows such as The Mash Report are tackling serious issues as well as fictional sketches and silliness. But is it safe to get your news from clowns? If a comedian's main job is to make people laugh, is it right to expect the same amount of research that you'd get from an investigative journalist? Aren't comedians doing enough on TV right now with travel shows, reality shows, cooking shows, acting, and in fact everything else except ever actually telling any jokes? And is this why people fact-check my wordplay gags on Twitter all of the fucking time? 
This week, as a bit of light relief from the general despairs of the world, I thought it'd be nice to look at if light relief from the general despairs of the world is okay. After reading an excellent piece by Ellie Fishley a few weeks ago entitled Comedians Aren't Journalists, Stop Treating Them Like They Are, I thought it'd be great to get her on the show to talk about it. So I asked her if she had time for a chat. Ellie is a journalist and also does communications for Shoutout UK, a brilliant social enterprise that aims to expand media and political literacy in schools and tackle misinformation. So I asked Ellie what the difference between comedians and journalists is, a question that I feel needs some sort of punchline about. One does hat gags, the other's a rag hack, but it doesn't doesn't quite work. Hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't get this sort of workshopping on a news podcast, I'll tell you that. We also talked about left and right wing comedy and if this podcast is dangerous. Spoiler, I think you're okay to keep listening. I hope you enjoy. Here is Ellie. I'm slightly worried because this is uh, a political comedy podcast, and uh, I'm about to I, I'm about to ask you why it's very unhelpful uh, to conflate kind of comedy and journalism. And I'm very aware that I've had people actually say to me, "Oh yeah, I get all my news from your show," and I was think, "No, don't do that. Why on earth would you do that?" So, <laughs> so maybe maybe as a word of wisdom, it's probably going to turn some listeners off ever listening again. Um, why is it why is it dangerous to be assuming that what I do with this show and what all satirists do is the same as journalism? Dan, I'm sorry that if, if my if I'm serving to undermine your business in some way, if I'm gonna deprive <laughs> you of your income. I, I you know that's not what I'm here for, but it is it, it is dangerous, I think. I don't mean to be melodramatic, but comedians and journalists are not the same thing, which we should intuitively know. But it seems as though some comedians are held to journalistic standards just because they happen to be talking about something that's in the news. When I say conflate comedy and journalism, I mean, you can sort of view the two as a spectrum in that you can be talking about a topical issue and you might be doing it in a way that is intending to be educational and accurate, or you could be doing it in a comic way, but then you could sort of combine the three of them. But it doesn't mean that the person doing it is a, both a comedian and a journalist at the same time. And trying to fulfill both purposes is really difficult because journalism, good journalism, is underpinned by the values of accuracy, of double checking, of trying to educate and get to the truth. You can editorialize and you can campaign within that. I mean, that's something that newspapers are specifically allowed to do under the editorial guidance, but it's difficult because people then have a go at comedians for being inaccurate or for their comedy seeming to have a bias in it or the reason that this came to our attention in the first place because the BBC had too many people from the left wing supposedly meaning that people are sort of asking comedians to be as balanced as you'd expect and the BBC to be perhaps if you believe they are in any way which I'm sure many of our listeners <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah it's weird I, it's one of the things that uh, uh, I'm a well myself and also lots of colleagues really noticed over the last few years that, that we as comedians are now fact-checked more often than politicians are on Twitter and on social media. Quite often you'll get someone going, um, actually, that's not what the stats say. And you go, no, but I was writing a joke. It didn't need to but be I got what they 30 say. retweets, so it must have been funny. So who cares, Glenda? <laughs> because the way that comedy is structured, especially satir- satirical comedy, there's a very specific way that jokes are written and that you tend to set out with a premise. You set out with something that actually happened in the news and you have to develop it in some way into a punchline you have to make it more extreme or you have to take the audience somewhere that they don't expect but obviously it needs to have a kernel of truth to it otherwise it's nonsense you wouldn't make a joke about Michael Gove's like delicious booty I don't know where that joke came from but you wouldn't been criticized for his behind you wouldn't make a joke about that but you might make a joke about 
his performance at Defra or something, you know, you, you just, you have to make a joke that kind of connects to the person. So when people are going, oh, that's too big a leap, a leap or what you're saying isn't strictly accurate, it's go, well, is it funny though? That's kind of the point of, of comedy is, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be accurate, it just needs to be funny. But is there, I mean, you know, are people trusting comedy too much? And is is that... um? You know, wh- why are people sort of putting that trust onto comedy? Uh, is that because of how news has become maybe more entertainment based and a bit more sensationalist? Um, you know, and, and, and sort of a lot of political panel shows are now just who's got the most controversial guest. And so are people looking to comedians going, oh, well, I trust you to give me a slightly more reasonable view of things? This is really interesting as a point. There's this two facets to this. The first one is that I think that political literacy is something that people are lacking if they are looking to satire and to comedy as a form of education. I mean, if you haven't read any news in the past two weeks and then you watched Have I Got News For You, you'd pick up some of the stories, you'd figure out kind of what had been in the headlines, except you'd be getting a very skewed perspective of what went down. They'd be picking out all of the irony and all of the hysteria and you wouldn't really get any of the facts. You'd be reading the headlines and then some complete bollocks that they've made up because it made the audience laugh. <laughs> So that's the first thing is that if you are not politically literate, as in you do not understand the fundamentals of the political system, you don't understand the basics of the characters that we see in the news and what they're supposed to achieve, then you're coming into this fairly blind because you're just there for the punchlines, but you're not really there to look at the stories. And then you'll be reading the news looking for things that are funny you're developing an unhealthy mindset towards the world but then again a cynic might just wish the whole world is for entertainment purposes and that who cares what happens if it makes you laugh you know nihilism is good times uh, i did have a second point there and that was about the idea of which panel show has got the most controversial guests i mean it's probably going to be who's the most left-wing guest because the only right-wing comedian anyone can think of is jeff norcott um so it's it's sort of um if you're asking panel shows and also political programs, political panel shows to have controversial guests, then it does become a bit of a competition about who can say the most outlandish thing or have the most outlandish opinion. And then it's not really about comedy or journalism at all. It's just people shouting opinions. It's just like listening to Jeff down the pub after a pint, except they happen to be on television. They're still talking out their ass. But, but, do, you, but do you think that leads people to kind of seek it? From others, so we can, we, you know, we have this big thing for many years of not trusting the mainstream media and lots of conspiracy theories, all that sort of don't trust the mainstream media. And it's the, you know, in the States, the big QAnon thing is that it's lied to you. Know, so, but does that, for people who aren't then going to go and try and save the world from a global cabal of child abusers, the rest of us, the rest of other people who go, oh, I'm sick of this news, is, is that why they're then turning to comedians? They're turning to other sources. Is that, is that part of the issue? They're expecting to be more truthful or they're expecting there to be less of an agenda, I think, is, is kind of what you, you might sort of infer from that question because you might think that the mainstream media has this bias in it so I mean you can clearly see that in some mainstream papers there is there is a bias within there but having an idea that there's a conspiracy behind all of it and that the whole media is trying to delude you and we're all being treated like sheep you can take that that, that, that opinion if you want um, but then turning to comedy instead because you're expecting that that the comedians don't have an agenda is 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 even more naive it's even more sheep-like because we all know that comedians have an agenda 
is to make a little bit of dollar. <laughs> you know, it's a craft and it's a skill to be able to turn something perhaps tragic or, uh, you know, terrible that's happening into, into, in the news into something funny. But it's not as though the comedians, just because they aren't bound by party politics, perhaps, or because they aren't being paid by Richard Murdoch, um, that they don't have some sort of agenda because we know that they're just there to make you laugh. So if you're trusting them over journalists, then you're just swapping one sort of, um, erasing one sort of motivation for another. Sure, that makes sense. And also, as you said, like, uh, you know, the, the main thing here is that journalism is about delivering information and comedy is very much about making you laugh, which are two wildly different things, uh, you know, even even if you can mix them. I mean, the, the, the reason we are talking, the reason, um, you know, that the, I, I read your article, which I thought was brilliant, and then you got in touch with me. I said, I'm happy to talk about it. It was like, brilliant. But it, there was that uh, story that turned out to not be a story. Uh, obviously, uh, it was a Telegraph story about how uh, the, the new director general of the BBC was going to try and scrap left-wing comedy because there was too much of it on the BBC. Um, and then he, it turned out he didn't say that at all. It was all loaded nonsense. But... You know, this is one of the things that we're hearing all the time, that it's comedy's overrun by left-wing comedians, um, and then there's the argument that right-wing comedians aren't funny. Um, are either of those things true? And I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I've got a lot of personal opinions about this, but <laughs> I'm going to hand it over to you for a, perhaps a more coherent, uh, eloquent uh, answer. <laughs> oh, I would very much like to hear your opinions, Tim, but I think, yeah, that was the non-story in the end, that because I am a complete loser, uh, I also remember BBC staff, that when Tim Davey, the new director general of the BBC, did a live webcast of BBC staff, I actually set aside time on a Tuesday morning to listen to it, uh, because I have no life. And so he confirmed that he wasn't planning to scrap all the left-wing comedians, which is a shame for there's so many right-wing comedians out there because there are so many. And that's precisely the point, that there aren't very many people who are, you know, who are sort of coming at comedy from a right-wing perspective because of the nature of satire being that you're supposed to be punching up, essentially. You're, you're taking the, the mickey out of somebody and often you're going to be taking the mickey out of people in power, those who are actually influencing society, the people that affect people. And guess who's been in government for, well, <laughs> as long as we can remember, I can remember as um, a young adult, uh, I'm only 23, so I can't actually remember a time when the Labour government was being mocked. It's all I've known. Um, but that the thing is that it's, it's just not funny to take the mickey out of people that are disempowered or that are um, vulnerable. That's why you don't tend to t hear many jokes about people who are, say, disabled or e you know, economically disadvantaged because it's considered tasteless. But going for the people who are sitting there in Whitehall, in Number 10, driving to Barnard Castle, those are safe targets. It's easy. It's low-hanging fruit is what I called it. And you can't blame comedians for picking it because they're doing outrageous things every day. Policies that are making some people, you know, fear for their lives or cry or who god knows what and if, if there's anyone to take the mickey out of it's the people who are doing that um so and the other point though is that it's not really about left and right wing because as i noted have i got news for you is obviously one of the biggest um satire comedy panel shows and boris johnson he, he he not only hosted it i think it's three times but he was a guest on it four times when the late when Labour was in government, so I want to check those statistics. Um, yeah, he appeared thrice as a guest, and he also hosted the program four times. Okay, I got that the wrong way around, so I'll say that. Okay, so we all know "Have I Got News for You" is the biggest satire comedy panel show out there, but Boris Johnson not only hosted it 
four times, but also appeared thrice as a guest on it. And that was during Labour's government. So this is an opportunity for someone who's clearly rather right wing to have a go and to, you know, take the mickey out of what was then the incumbent government. So we know that it isn't an issue of left and right wing so much. It's not necessarily partisan. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. It's it's um I think there's there's a there's a number of things in that you know comedians we're meant to think outside the box and we're meant to present a different view. And as you say, when the only government we've had for the last ten years is a conservative one, a different view is going to be opposed to them. It's not going to be the but but I mean you know the other thing is I think a lot of comedians aren't political at all and they say what they think is funny. Um, and again, everyone knows who's in government, everyone knows who's in control, so jokes are going to come out. Uh, about that and I, I think that's sort of largely largely it really I don't think there's an awful lot more to it than that um there aren't many right-wing comedians Jeff Norcott is good there's a there's a handful of others but they, it just isn't sort of what comes naturally to a lot of people clearly there isn't an appetite for it then because I'm sure that panel shows would be happy to book people who could bring a different perspective to the jokes a different kind of joke they could counteract somebody else's one-liner with a quip to take the mickey out of the Labour Party which does happen by the way plenty of anti-semitism jokes around if you have a look for them um but yeah you're right there aren't there aren't very many of them out there so I'm just wondering guys would you would you like me to masquerade as an extreme right winger and then like become the world's first right wing female comedian and then get booked on all the the panel shows like I mean it does seem like an easy route doesn't it I mean I discovered this week uh, and and podcasters will be sick of me going on about this now but one of my favorite Fred Perry shirts is now a shirt worn by the proud boys who are Nazis and uh, I've got all my comedy photo pictures in this Fred Perry shirt because I love it and now I can't use any of them because it's a Nazi shirt. So part of me is thinking maybe I should just relabel, go on as an extreme. No, first uh, the Nazis appropriated the swastika and now they've taken the shirt. That yeah. is a step too far. It is too far. And it's specifically my favourite t-shirt. And um, it's just not fair. And it's not fair, Ellie. I'm still very angry about it, but I'm wondering if I should use it to my favour and just get on all the BBC shows as the first ever uh, far-right <laughs> comedian. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's in me. Do it. We'll be in a race. Yeah, I think that's sounds really good. Because you're actually a comedian. <laughs> it sounds like a really good plan. I think it's definitely definitely worth me trying. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we'll be back with Ellie in a minute. But first, it's September, October, so it stands to reason that right now it's conference season. That's political conferences, not conference pairs. Although if you plant them around now, they'll be really nice for next August. If you like pairs, that is... And if you don't, then maybe don't do that. Oh, conference season, conference season. For me, the term virtual still conjures up an exciting world of online exploration, fighting zombies, pretending you're in another galaxy, or like in the film Lawnmower Man, just making lots of landlines ring, which wouldn't really happen now as no one has one. It'd be bleak being Lawnmower Man this year, though, as not only would you invade Noculus Rift just as Facebook are discontinuing it, but then you'd find the most mayhem you'd be able to get up to would be gate-crashing the UK political party's conference season, and you'd probably bore yourself back into an old flight simulator or something. Though to be fair, if you are an internet goblin, making sure no one could access the site for the Conservative conference while Michael Gove was on was definitely an act of good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, it is conference season, not that you'd know it unless you look really, really hard. There's no hubbub or political shows desperately seeking out comments from attendees. There's no videos where everyone points out how all the young conservatives either look like they've killed before or have been whisked out of an Amdan production of Wind in the Willows. Or both. There's no weird controversies and an MP says something at an after-hours event that may have had a swear in it or danced really badly at the disco or grouse shooting simulators or party leaders coughing through a speech, which actually is really odd considering the Covid infection rate. And really, there's been very little coverage of just what the parties want to do next, which I guess does make them appeal more to the public right now, as most of us don't have a clue either. Instead, thanks to Covid, there have been speeches in front of one-colour backgrounds and speeches in corridors, and all of them to the weird, silent, blank response you can only get from a very, very empty room. Trust me, I've done enough gigs to know. So, what have you missed? Well, in order of appearance... Labour's conference was called Labour Connected, which sounds like it's somewhere between a dating site, an app to book manual workers, or the world's most uninspiring phone line. The party said the conference was about people coming together to create a fairer and better society, so I guess it's a dating site then. The event included online training on how to get more wannabe candidates for local and national government elected, which is apparently all about being more professional to beat the Conservatives. And that's odd, as really all they'd have to do to do that is not support a second referendum and maybe get a very big bus. Shadow Health Secretary and employee of the Wayland yutani Corporation, John Ashworth, said lots of really obvious things about how good the NHS is and all the ways the Conservatives are breaking it, before saying, yeah, but Labour wouldn't, though. And then Deputy Leader and member of the Free Folk Beyond the Wall, Angela Rayner, listed all the things the Conservatives are doing wrong with handling Covid, before saying Labour would call them out on it, presumably by, you know, abstaining on votes and then supporting their policies. Leader and forehead worry lines, but for a whole face, Keir Starmer did a big speech where he said he wasn't Jeremy Corbyn in about six different ways before going on about patriotism just to lose the voters they did have last time round. It seemed a lot like what Joe Biden is now doing in the States, where his entire platform for electability is just, well, at least I'm not him. You may as well have the slogan, not as shit, and spend the rest of the day prancing around looking smug. There were no votes on policies at the Labour conference this year, and there'll be no spring conference either, so members won't get to vote on what policies the parties do have till next autumn. Meaning from now till then, it's likely their main platform will just continue to be one where they point at the Tories and go, yeah, but I mean, quite a lot. Not so much a progressive vision for the future, but more a promise that one day you might be bored by politics again. 
The Lib Dems conference had leader and background character in a medieval reenactment, Ed Davey, telling his party to wake up and smell the coffee, which sounds very much like you've done something regrettable and accidentally stayed over at his. He talked about being a carer for his disabled son and how he'd be the voice for all carers, which is a good thing except that no one's really listening to him either. Party spokesperson for foreign affairs and woman who always looks like she's being a contestant on a Channel 4 show about cakes or sewing or painting or something, Leila Moran, did a big speech talking about all the places in the world she's lived in, which in times of Covid when no one's able to travel just felt a little bit mean. She talked about being six years old and seeing children in Ethiopia her age who had nothing and how her vision of global Britain would be facing those kids and saying she helped to make the world better, which is nice but I have a feeling they'd have no idea who she was and would be quite freaked out if she just turned up in their homes. They did manage to have votes at their conference this year doing slightly better than Labour there, taking on the idea of a universal basic income which is good and it means there's a bit more backing to it being a possibility. Members also voted to push for renewed membership of the EU as a longer term objective because with only 11 MPs they may as well have whatever policies they'd like because it's really important to be creative. The Green Party conference had both leaders deliver their speech together but distanced to make you feel like your divorced parents had planned an intervention about your drinking. Sean Berry and Jonathan Bartley said the coronavirus lockdown showed us how Britain can be better with subsidised wages, homelessness fixed, supporting the NHS and not having to see your family. OK, they didn't say the last one. They pointed out how many of their policies from the past few years have now been adopted by other parties, such as universal basic income, like the Lib Dems have just gone uh, and supported, investment in a sustainable economy and money for cycling. In fact, it's probably worth looking at Green Party policy now to work out what the Conservatives won't be doing properly in 2030. The Tory conference is currently underway with Boris Johnson's speech happening tomorrow and we all know it'll probably include lots of how we're all doing everything together even though him and his dad isn't and then there'll be loads of things he'll say as party have achieved without pointing out how they're only a fraction of what they should be achieving and then he'll probably have a funny name for Keir Starmer then he'll say something in Latin and I don't know fart fall over and rub his tummy. The rest of the conference so far seems to be a similar lack of substance, with Pretty Patel mainly shouting about how she hates them foreigns and anyone who tries to stop her hating the foreigns, uh, Rishi Sunak saying that he can't do everything for anyone, which is why he's barely trying to do anything for anyone, and Dominic Raab saying he was worried the Prime Minister would die of Covid, because then, like a sad dog, he'd have to spend the rest of his days sitting outside number 10 whimpering with no idea what to do. Then both he and the little bit of Michael Gove people had to suffer were actually all about levelling up new opportunities, blah, 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 same old shit. The Conservatives have spent thousands creating a virtual conference because, you know, they love making things of little real substance and spending far too much money on it. Companies could pay between £6,000 and £25,000 for a virtual stall, an indication of what their business will likely look like after Covid and Brexit. But two potentially interesting things, if for some reason we have temporary naivety and pretend they won't cock either up after costing taxpayers millions to do so. The first is the announcement of a second Conservative Party HQ in Leeds, which is long overdue, as they've only ever been able to ignore Yorkshire from London before, but now they're able to do it while actually there. And there is supposedly a promise from the Prime Minister that he'll get plans to help young people get on the housing ladder with mortgages that allow just 5% deposits. And that's so needed that it would still make buying in the South impossible and guarantee the only houses around will be ones Richard Desmond has made for a fiver out of old tin cans and some cereal boxes. We will have to wait and see. The SNP conference doesn't have a set date yet, but will likely be later this month and will also be entirely virtual, so Margaret Ferrier can't turn up and cough on anyone. And no idea if UKIP will have a conference, as they only have an interim leader at the moment and he's too stupid to know how a computer works. 
Yeah, so that is this year's highly underwhelming conference season. You haven't really missed much, and I can't hear the crowds mourning for it with their favourite memories of past conferences, like they did with Glastow or having friends. Who knows what they'll be like next year, but fingers crossed whether they be virtual or real, they'll somehow be even less Michael Gove. And now, back to Ellie. Um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, the other thing is is that, you know... Uh, it's sort of about there are there are jokes about labor and there's jokes about conservatives but one of the things that i know from it, knowing people who work in a lot of tv comedy and having done a little bit of writing for it myself is that impartiality means you have to joke about everyone all of the time and you can't just do a, a show about one particular party um do you think that kind of impartiality has has damaged how we view comedy because you know we got lots of people saying the bbc is all left wing or bbc is all right wing but actually it's completely it is completely impartial, uh, according to its own guidelines. This is, a big, this is a big problem, though. This is something that, after doing a bit of very nerdy digging, I found out, does satire count under the BBC's remit of being impartial? It's supposed to be impartial in terms of its journalism, but does satire actually count? And this was quite curious, um, because I looked at a 2019 review by Ofcom, which reviews the BBC standards and how it performs. And it said that satirical targeting of a range of figures was one of the editorial techniques that it used to preserve impartiality. So it framed satire in that respect as a way to achieve impartiality. And then Davey said this in his webcast. He said that his approach to satire is exactly the same as his overall framework for impartiality. That's a quote. So it's sort of like the BBC's digging itself a hole there by acting like satire is something that they should be achieving impartiality with. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. But even so... Um, I think impartiality is fundamentally um, incompatible with comedy because I suppose it depends on how you interpret impartiality. Do you mean that every joke is impartial as in that there's no punchline, nobody is taking the mickey out of, no, I'm not going to say take the mickey out again. There's no punchline. Nobody is the punchline here that it's a joke where, I mean, I just don't understand the idea of a joke where something or someone isn't being attacked that's the whole point of a joke. So you can't really have a joke that's impartial. If anyone can come up with an impartial joke, I will give you all 20 pence of my life savings. I don't care. I'd be so impressed. Please get in touch. Um, But then the other form of impartiality is perhaps, do we have an equal amount of jokes from this perspective? Is this perspective? Okay, we've got a joke about Boris Johnson. Here's some about him being a very, very promiscuous man. And here's some about how faithful a husband he is. I don't know. Why would you do that when... Yeah, why would you try and make jokes about these things? Because as I said, there needs to be a kernel of truth. And if you're trying to make jokes about Boris Johnson being a very faithful husband, not many people are going to laugh because the entire joke is built around the idea that this man is not. And I feel like I'm going to be taken up on now by the Twitter brigade for insulting <laughs> Boris Johnson. Well, like my, um, my limited experience, I, I won't name shows and things, but the, you know, there was a, a show that I did a little bit work on it, and, and it was like if there was one joke about the Conservatives, there had to be one about Labour, and there had to be one about the Lib Dems, even if there was nothing in the news about them that week. Which I, for me, takes the bite out of every. Like, what's the point in doing these jokes if there's nothing going on? Um, and I know comics who've done big bits for television or for radio, and then they've had parts of it edited out, so they've almost seemed less impartial than they were <laughs> because they hadn't presented both sides of the argument. So it's it can be quite confusing. I mean, one of the the big issues as well is that. 
comedy previously was in, uh, and I use this term carefully, but safe spaces. And it was the comedian in the audience. And therefore, the audience would trust the comedian to say things as a comedian. And now we're in a world where everything is taken out of context and punchlines are handed over to the press. Uh, the same press that complain about cancel culture and safe spaces then want to condemn a comedian who's made a joke about something they don't like. So, you know, is, is this just also kind of what we should be... Is this just what we have to put up with now? <laughs> is what I was going to ask yeah, that's precisely the thing. I mean, I, I, I might argue that perhaps it was more of a safe space before in that you were in that sort of environment, whereas now an artificial safe space of sorts is being constructed whereby comedians aren't allowed to make jokes that might offend people. And that's harmful uh, because it, it makes it much more difficult for comedians and you end up with jokes that are much less funny if you have to avoid offending people or you know that these jokes will be reproduced on Twitter, shared around, and that you will be typecast and you will be lampooned for your extreme opinions when in fact you were just trying to you know knock a joke out of a headline yeah yeah there's often not much more to it as well that's pretty much just the intention behind it i just wanted to make you laugh but now suddenly fifty thousand people are telling me i'm a terrorist or something it's uh, it's funny how it goes um that hasn't happened to me i should just say i'm just sort of projecting fifty thousand people happen. i was like no offense mate yeah, no, no, it's, it's never that many. It's normally like two people who... Uh... <laughs> it feels like an army. Yeah, I, I was big, I, I was I was sort of uh, projecting myself onto a better comedian there. That's what I was doing. Um, a more famous one. Um, so, I mean, considering all of that, do you think... Uh, and again, this is loaded considering the podcast that I'm asking you these questions on. But does satire have any sort of use in today's society when it is, you know, having to be impartial because of television, when people are having to watch what they say, when uh, it's, you know, when people are accidentally conflating it with journalism? Is is there a way that satire is useful? Is there a, a um, you know, responsible way that we should be digesting it? Well, the word digest is actually rather apt because I like to think of comedy and the news and satire as a sort of cocktail, a news cocktail. And that if you take the jokes, that's sort of like the pure ethanol. And you can't drink that in and of itself. That would be toxic. You come out of this, if you only ever read jokes, you would be quite frankly clueless, my friend. Whereas if you spent some of your cocktail time reading in-depth articles, watching documentaries, actually thinking about and discussing the news and ensuring that you are politically literate enough to understand what you are reading and have a balanced opinion of it, then that, that's a healthy cocktail, that's a healthy drink, and you can drink that between one and 14 units per week safely. That's fine. Um, so I would say that satire certainly has a place in society if you personally are able to consume it responsibly and that you are able to enjoy it for what it is which is light relief it's jokes and it's a way to kind of get it's just it's to find something funny and enjoyable about what's happening find something funny about the madness in the world around you um but you need to actually understand the news if you're going to be a, a, a responsible consumer but can it be used like a sort of a like, like a gateway drug? If you if you start on satire, can you get into real news via satire? Oh, do you think well. it could be? Uh, do you think it could be a sort of starting point? I think maybe we could call it an appetizer. Yeah. Considering that I would like to frame the news as a more positive way to invest great deals of your time, but I say that as somebody deeply invested 
in the idea of political literacy and us educating ourselves. So if satire does turn out to be a gateway drug, then that's great news. But I, it's, it's funny, I've never really thought about the idea of someone enjoying satire shows and then being like, hmm, let me find out more about what's happening behind this. <laughs> I mean, some comedy shows, some satire shows do actually do deep dive journalism. And that's what kind of confuses people because you've got, say, The Mash Report with Nish Kumar did tend to have some sort of slightly in-depth features. And then you have John Oliver's show in the US where he genuinely, well, his team, I say him, it's his team of like 30 people, genuinely research a story, but then they throw jokes in there as well. So people feel like they're learning at the same time. So as long as people kind of understand that the people writing those jokes and those stories aren't journalists and they aren't qualified to give you impartial information and you go into that and you enjoy it for what it is, then that's sort of healthy. But I'd advise you to just read the bloody news. So is that, is that the best way to get political literacy? You know, in, in uh, I I feel like not many people have it. And, and I, I feel it's quite snobbish to say that, isn't it? And there's a lot of people that are politically aware, but more and more people, I think, especially as things get more and more hectic and they just want to switch off from it all. Um, you know, political literacy can be quite hard to come by. What is, how do we get there? How do we, how do we become politically literate um, in a world that's either news screaming at you, comedy that isn't factually correct, or someone's meme on Facebook that makes you think, I probably won't be friends with you anymore? Well, I mean, you say the word snobbish, but it's sort of true that a lot of people don't have proper political literacy for no fault of their own because currently in the uk at least politics is almost absent from the curriculum there's a there's the citizenship under the pshe umbrella which may if you're very lucky in your school touch on politics but you're never going to have the opportunity to properly delve into these things unless you were lucky enough to go to one of the few schools probably a private school that has the government and politics a level if you don't do that then throughout your childhood there's no expectation that you need to educate yourself about politics. You're just expected to suddenly learn about it of your own accord. You're just supposed to suddenly have an epiphany and understand it. But in reality, I think the way people can achieve political literacy and therefore be able to consume satire and comedy responsibly is by us having as a society an approach to politics whereby children are taught it and it's integrated into the school system. And it's like maths and biology in that it's something you're supposed to know about. Yeah, there's, I'm sure that's why there's a kind of disconnect. But, you know, there was um, I can't remember who to credit this to. So this is terrible. And I apologize wholeheartedly to whoever said this, this phrase. But as somebody in one of the many podcasts I listened to, they was talking about how, you know, they explain to people that you, you know, you don't get into politics. Politics happens to you. And that is because it happens to everything in your life. It happens to your, you know, what happens in your schools is politics. What happens in your work is politics. It's all it's happening to you. And that's how they got people into it. And and I was sort of thinking, I don't think we're ever taught that. I've never I've never heard that from anyone i can't remember i heard that from terrible but i but i've never heard that from anyone before and i think until i you know became interested in politics i had no idea how many things it affected that's the thing it's funny that you say well they say that politics will find its way to you because shout out uk is actually making some face masks at the moment about uh misinformation being a virus and that political literacy is the antidote and another one says that if you don't do politics politics will do you uh which is <laughs> just strangely similar to that phrase so it must mean that it's true because it's being cross-referenced journalism bringing the journalism to the podcast um but yeah <laughs> politics everywhere everything is deeply integrated into politics i mean famously the politics is political in a feminist sense but everything that happens to us is going to be in some way attached to politics down to the furniture that's in your room to the food that you eat to the air that you breathe how clean is it a lot of them pretty much all of them will be affected by political decisions 
and if you trace them back far enough then you'll kind of it'll work its way back to parliament or to some institution that you could study and you could understand a bit better why the world looks the way that it looks so uh you just mentioned there yourself you mentioned shout out uk uh, which is where i read your article too um and i, I just wonder if you can give us a little explainer of exactly what shout out uk is so that the listeners can go and check it out Sure. Well, Elevator Pitch Time, it is a youth-led social enterprise dedicated to improving political and media literacy amongst young people. The way we achieve this is through courses and workshops delivered to young people in schools to supplement the PSHE curriculum, which pretty much doesn't actually mention politics in terms of the national curriculum so far. So we want for every school in the UK to use resources like ours, not necessarily ours, but you know, preferably ours, to give their students the opportunity to learn about politics, to get proper education, to get the fundamentals and to debate these things in a classroom setting, because we fundamentally believe it's, it's obvious that politics needs to be integrated into the national curriculum in some way. It needs to be mandatory. It can't just be expected that when you turn 18, you'll suddenly know enough about the world in order to make an informed vote in the ballot box. It's not going to happen. Rather, it should be part of our education system. And so we want to give students the opportunity to learn about this throughout their life. So if there are any teachers listening, people involved in educational establishments that would like Shout Out UK to get involved in um, helping kids to uh, gain political literacy, what can they do? They can go to our website, Google Shout Out UK, and you will find two things. Firstly, you'll find our blog, which is where we give young writers, aspiring journalists, the opportunity to write about politics. But in our header at the top, you'll see links to our e-portal and our political literacy resources so that you can learn a bit more about us and you can see if your school can get involved and we can come and help you out thanks to ellie for that chat uh, you can find her on twitter at underscore machiavelli uh spelled as it sounds underscore and her articles are on the aforementioned shout out uk which you can find at shoutoutuk.org or shout out underscore uk on twitter and facebook at yep shout out uk and do get in touch with them if you work in an educational facility place and are keen to get more political literacy on your students curriculum uh, all suggestions for future guests and things to cover are always welcome so finger punch that keyboard and let me know the who's and what's at Parpol Bro on Twitter the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or you could run the name of the person in a route on your fitness app and then send me the image afterwards but I have a terrible feeling that it'll only lead to recommendations for people with very short names or cause several terrible accidents as you're forced to climb over houses or cross motorways just to correctly write an H or something as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast, which means, yes, it is time for this week's Pop Opera Hot Podcast Fact. And with Trump full of the COVIDs, which other political leaders have been sick while in office? Fact, fact, fact. Only person born with a Chelsea smile, Tony Blair, was rushed to hospital in 2004 while Prime Minister complaining of chest pains and was diagnosed with supraventricular tachycardia, something that doctors put down to his heart taking time off while he made decisions about Iraq. Blair told everyone it wasn't a big deal and that actually he was fit and healthy, weighing less than he did a decade before, probably because a conscience can be quite heavy. Former US President and the chicken nugget for a head, Franklin Roosevelt, a year before he died, had tests that show he had high blood pressure, atherosclerosis, coronary disease and congestive heart failure. But his personal physician said he was perfectly okay and there were absolutely no organic difficulties at all. Which was right, as they are all largely caused by his chain smoking and tobacco then was full of additives. 
And former British Prime Minister and Pillsbury Doughboy Winston Churchill, during his second term at number 10, was deemed to be gloriously unfit for office by his biographer. He suffered a second stroke in 1953, leaving him paralysed down one side, and he was told he might not survive the weekend, but he held a cabinet meeting anyway, and no one seemed to notice any difference. Which many have classed as bravery, but I think if one thing you can say about someone is you wouldn't be able to tell if they'd had a stroke or not, it's not really a compliment, is it? And I suppose in that sense, Trump is indeed very Churchillian. And that's this week's Pop Opera Hot Bowl Goss Fact. If you enjoyed it and the episode, then please do holler about it across the valleys and send smoke signals across the plane with full details on how everyone should stream and listen in. If you hated it, then why not accept it as your penance for how mean you were that time you wouldn't give your ice cream to that dog? Sure, it was your ice cream and it wasn't your dog, but he's not forgiven you and neither have I. If you can, please donate to the Kofi Patreon or Acast supporter page and give the show a lovely five-star review on one of your so-called podcast apps. Mega cheers is to Acast for pod hosting, my brother the last sceptic for all the music tunes, Cat Dave for typing up the linear liner notes, Scott Napier for video subtitling and Katie Coxall for all of the art stuff. This will be back next week when it turns out that Donald Trump only survived COVID-19 because it sensed a kindred spirit and merged with his blood, causing him to mutate into a large purple-orange floating virus particle, coughing on Americans and he has to be shot down by the army. He still somehow wins in Florida, though. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Microsoft Excel. Your potential are... Oh, oh no, sorry. We've lost it. Sorry. What was it again? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.